We will be reading from Matthew 11, 25 through 30 this morning. And I know these are uh, words that I need to hear this morning. Um, I'm going through a challenging season in my life, and I have a feeling other people in the room are feeling that as well. And so it's really good to just not only hear the word of God, but actually receive it. So let's prepare our hearts to do that. Matthew 11:25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and it's a pleasure to see you all this morning. I actually want to begin with a word of prayer today, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as Lori has reminded us, we come in, even though we've been singing songs, we've been having time to com converse with one another, we come with so many different things in our hearts and in our minds. The lens of pain, the lens of hurt, the lens of worry, anxiety over the week ahead, or disappointment with the week behind. And God, we pray that you would give us focus. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word, the beauty of your word, the rest that you offer. For you are a good, good father, and that's who you are. May we hear fresh of how much you love us and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin, I want to invite you to imagine. Imagine you're at the threshold of a door. It's a door you've heard rumors about, you know, and so many people spend their lives chasing after this door, but you found it. And the real intrigue isn't even with the door itself, but what's behind. Behind the door is a room where upon entering, you will receive your heart's unfiltered wants. Your deepest and wildest dreams come true. In this room, the most unimaginable of your passions become realized. Your deepest and darkest desires become reality. All you have to do is push the door and walk in. So what will you do? I think if we give that scenario just a moment of thought and realize the repercussions of what might be on the other side of that door, even the most daring among us would hesitate for even just a second before you pushed the door to see what is on the other side. Why? Well, in the iconic 1969 film, Stalker, 
That starts off the thing well, doesn't it? An artist and a scientist, they find themselves at the threshold of such a door. And after all of the searching, going through the zone, they find themselves finally at the door with their wishes, their desires potentially being fulfilled. And then they pause because there's this question, what if, what if what they've always wanted has no correlation with what they really want? Do they even know what they really want? And you see, this is where the rub is because the room will reveal all. It will reveal not what you think you want, but what you deeply and most truly want above all else. And it's this sudden realization that causes them to pause because what if they don't want what they thought they wanted? What if the desires they've chosen to acknowledge are but the tip of the iceberg, and when their desires are, the most deepest of their desires are fulfilled, a wholly different person is revealed. And when that person is revealed, they realize it's someone they hate. What are they going to do? Let's turn back to our lives. When you look at the landscape of your everyday, what is it you want with life? Now, we've got our pat answers when we're with certain groups of friends, or maybe you're sitting in community group and you know the stump speech, right? But let me ask you the question again. Would you go into that room knowing that you could never leave once you entered? You see, we all live with a gap between what we think we want and what we most deeply and truly want. What we think we want and what we say and actually how we live, where our deepest desires, even in the subconscious, take control of the actions of our days. Because listen, I want to be selfless, or at least I want to want to be selfless. <laughs> because I, somebody's got to look out for number one, right? I want, or at least want to want, to be generous, but my savings account needs a little bit of extra padding. I want to want to be sacrificially loving when somebody starts caring for me, okay? And, and we start... To live our lives, or maybe we continue to live our lives, with this back and forth, this tension of our desires. And we live this way almost every day, predominantly because even though it exhausts us, we just don't think there are any other options out there. Cue Matthew 11, where here Jesus, he longs to guide us in desiring the right things, that which is good, true, and beautiful all the way down. And so becoming people of deep integrity, people of deep rest. But in order to do that, or better, to become these kinds of people, Jesus says you need this. You need this. Now, some of you are wondering what is that and what does that have to do with this? And you start getting into demonstrative pronouns and you're worried. What in the world is he talking about? Well, here, okay, this is a yoke. Imagine we have a farmer and he has two oxen, Bessie and Bobby. He's a pretty lonely guy, so he talks to them a lot, and that's why they've got names. Don't ask questions. Bessie's been around, okay? She knows the lay of the land. She knows what it means to pull a plow, how to pull a plow, what it means to be an ox. But Bobby, you know, he's, he's young. He's new to the landscape. He's difficult to steer. Pun intended. Sorry. I, I told first service I wasn't going to do it again, but sorry. I I need to confess, I tried it again and it went worse. So, <clears throat> Bobby, he's difficult to steer. Now, and what, what happens is if the farmer were to put this yoke on Bobby, 
then the first sight of these rolling green hills with this luscious grass and the crystal blue waters, Bobby's gone. And so, so is the plow with him. So the farmer being experienced, he knows what it means to now cultivate even his farm animals. He hooks Bobby up to Bessie in the yoke. And over time, Bobby learns what it means to be an ox, such that when he sees the rolling green hills and the crystal blue waters, when he tries to go and his desires pull him, Bessie keeps him anchored <laughs> because she's bigger than he is. And over time, as they plow field after field, Bobby actually becomes like Bessie. He does what Bessie does. And so he becomes able to know what Bessie knows and even learns to love what Bessie loves. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to in this yoke with him. Now, some of you are probably thinking, ah, the antiquated agricultural tool I've always wanted, right? This is so shabby chic, perfect on my wall. But listen, <laughs> it looks great up there. It just fits the color theme of the, of the room. Now, <clears throat> but here's the deal. What Jesus is saying is if you want to be the person you have designed to be, if you want to be the person you're called to be, the person you deeply long to be, you need this. And slowly you'll become more and more like Jesus. And what we discover here at the end of Matthew 11 as we walk through this passage is we're going to see what keeps us out of the yoke. We're going to take a fresh look at who it is that invites us in, and we're going to get practical in talking about how we enter the yoke because Jesus says we need this if we're going to become people of integrity, of wholeness, who actually know rest when it's found, okay? So first, let's talk about what keeps us out. And to do that, let's begin here at verse 25 of chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In many conversations, more often than not, we think that ignorance is the problem of the world. We can shake our heads in dismay and think, when are they going to learn and some of our most biting and shocking comments come with the statement, how ignorant can you be? Thinking that if we just educate people to want the right wants, then we won't have these dehumanizing stereotypes and rampant violence. And to be sure, that's part of the picture, okay? But when Jesus says here to take my yoke upon you, it is, interestingly enough, those who are considered wise and full of understanding who miss it. Why? That's because what keeps us out of the yoke more than anything else isn't ignorance. It's arrogance. You see, the yoke throughout the history of the world has been a symbol of one major thing, slavery, with all the pain and the images of submission that go along with it. If you don't have to get into a yoke, Chances are you're not going to get in a yoke. <laughs> this isn't something you willingly choose on a normal scenario. If you think you can navigate your life on your own and do just fine, or as the wise sage in Proverbs says, be wise in your own eyes, then chances are if you're giving the yoke as an option in a list of options, you will probably opt out. But what Jesus says then is that those who don't even know what they don't know 
Little children are the ones who get it. Those who know they've got a lot of growing up to do in life, they realize that there's someone who's bigger than them, someone they have to look up to and so hook up to in the yoke. Those are the ones who will enter. And it's right here in this contrast between little children and those who are considered wise and full of understanding that we see what holds us back from entering the yoke more than anything else. It isn't our wits. Philosophical and existential questions, those are part of it. But ultimately, it's our will. It's not even as much our head as it is our heart. What we want. And do we know what we want? You see, you don't have to go to the best Ivy League college in the nation to get some of the best education in the world. You don't have to have an IQ above 120 to really get Jesus. It's much more inclusive than that. And it's that way by design. The greatest obstacle to what it means to enter the yoke is an arrogant posture. Because to enter a yoke, you have to bow. And pride, although it looks down, it never bows down to anyone. So if that's true, if arrogance is the greatest obstacle to entering into this yoke with Jesus, I want to ask you this morning, do you think you've got it all figured out? Or do you still have far to go? Do you think you've got it all figured out? Or do you feel like you still have far to go? Where do you stand? Are you looking up like a child? Are you looking down on others like they're children? And listen, I, I know pride is deceptive, okay? We can sit here and actually feel really good about ourselves and then talk about ourselves for the next hour about how good we feel about ourselves and how good we are about ourselves. I mean, so on can go. And we tell ourselves, aren't, aren't I so great? Aren't I so great? I don't know where that came from. Yeah, you know, aren't, aren't I just a great person and full of humility? And so what I want to do instead, and get, instead of getting stuck in that trap, is to ask us a couple diagnostic questions. And I'm going to read through them slowly, and I want you to reflect upon your answers to help us have a genuine assessment and how we view ourselves. Here we go. Question number one. When was the last time you asked for advice and then actually took it? When it went against what you were wanting to do in the first place. When was the last time you got frustrated when people tried to help you? Do you ever admit you are wrong and apologize? Or do you mostly brush off your mistakes by saying, Give me a break, I'm just human. When was the last time you acknowledged that you didn't know the answer to a question? Do you ever admit your failures? Or is failing mostly something other people do to you? You see, if you can't admit your failures, if you're always focused on the faults of others, if you can never admit that you don't know the answer to every question, if you're always consumed with being right such that you can never genuinely apologize, if you never take anyone's advice when it chafes against your own will, chances are you've got an exaggerated view of yourself. And you may say you want to enter this yoke with Jesus, but your deepest desire is actually to have space to do your own thing. And be careful because Jesus will give it to you. You see, the yoke, it's tailor-made to fit the little heads of children. It doesn't fit around swollen egos. And Jesus says, you need this. 
if you're ever going to become a person of deep integrity and so deep rest. So if arrogance is what keeps us out, who is it that invites us in anyway? Who is this yoke fellow? Look with me at chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is one of the most explicit statements in all of the Gospels about Jesus' unique and intimate relationship with God the Father. And I want you to think about this. Who, well, who do you have to be in order for God to entrust all things to you? Not just some things, not even just some small country in Europe, you know, that you'll eventually hand off to your offspring, hoping and desiring that they don't ruin the local economy and so destroy your legacy. I'm not even talking about an international business or the broken educational system we have in our nation. I'm talking about all things, the way the globe is tilted at a particular axis at the right distance from the sun so that it's not inflamed. I'm talking about a child when it's being developed out of sight and often out of mind in the earliest stages of its gestation. Everything. Jesus holds it all. And there's only one kind of person who can hold all of that together. There's only one person who has the character and the competency to do that, and that is God himself. And that's the point. You see, Jesus is no mere mortal. Yes, he is fully human, but he is not merely human. He is fully God. And one of the unique nuances, one of the most amazing gifts that we find in Christ is that he longs to make God fully known. More than any other religion or philosophy can ever attempt to promise and so deliver, Jesus says, look at me if you want to know God. This is why he says in the gospel account of John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus holds it all. And only exclusively in knowing him can you plumb the very depths of all that God is and all his glorious plans for the world and his plans for you and his plans for me. And it's out of this radical statement of God's intimate relationship, God the Father with God the Son, we find one of the most amazing invitations from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me. Come to me and know this intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Come to me, enter this relationship. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You know, on more occasions than not, when it's time for bed, to put my daughter to bed, she always, at least almost always, wants to sing one more song. One more song. One more Jesus loves me, you know. Or one more book. Or one more snuggle. And I love it, you know. Let's be very clear. But there are times when we've had a very long day, and my daughter will come up to me and say, Ava tired. Ava go night night. <laughs> and all I want to do is just pick her up and hold her and let all of that weariness drain from her and to come into me. And she knows rest. And what Jesus is saying is whatever burdens you're carrying, 
whatever weight is making you groan for relief, Jesus says, come to me. And his invitation is quite radical because he doesn't say, well, go make a sacrifice. He doesn't even say, hey, here's the number to my admin. <laughs> Instead, what Jesus says, it almost, it almost seems impossible to think that the God of the universe invites us to know him. The one who holds it all is ready to hold you. And he's ready, and he's actually asking you if he can carry what you're carrying, and so carry you. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he longs to point you to the life he's designed for you to live, the life we long to live, and this is the one who invites us into his yoke, to walk beside him. And if that's true, when you hear Jesus' invitation, what are you hoping to find? You know, I asked myself of that as I was reading through this passage afresh. When I hear Jesus' invitation, what am I hoping that he's offering? Because there's something I'm carrying that's weighing me down, that's making me groan for relief. There are some of you out there, you've been working at something over and over. You're burning the wick at both ends. Hey, I'm going to bed late. I'm getting up early. And you're just hoping that Jesus would bring it about already. When you hear Jesus' invitation, what are you hoping to find? Because listen, please listen. If you are coming to him looking for anything other than him, you will be sorely disappointed with what he gives, how he gives it, when he gives it, if in his sovereignty he chooses to give it at all. You see, St. Augustine, who said centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in your good gifts. No. He says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And when we look in our culture, there's actually a subgroup of individuals who've gone and experienced this restless life that's been put on display. You see the pain of so many that have this incredible talent that when they walk through the door of life, it's almost like every one of their desires of fame and fortune have been fulfilled. We call them stars because of their incredible gifts and how they garner our attention. They're the envy of everybody. And yet, when one, one Hollywood star passes away, what is one of the most common questions every news media outlet asks, every person who's looking in the news comes to think? Was their death, was it engaged in any way in the abuse of drugs? It's very cynical and it's very dark, but it's very true. How is it that those who have reached the zenith of success in our culture, everything that we're told to promise and want and long for, when they reach it there, they're still restless? And I started even just thinking through some of the stories. I think of Heath Ledger, you know? In 2008, a renowned actor. I, I loved watching the movies he was in. He was Batman's Joker. And he was found unconscious in his bed by his housekeeper. Paramedics couldn't revive the star at age 28. And he was later ruled to have died from acute intoxication from the combined effects of six different prescription drugs. Whitney Houston in 2012... The world was shocked when this famed diva at age 48 was found unconscious and submerged in the bathtub of her suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel where she was getting ready for a pre-Grammy party. At the time of her death, cocaine and other drugs were found in her system. 
Philip Seymour Hoffman, in 2014, the Oscar-winning actor was found dead from an apparent heroin overdose. He was 48 years old, and the list goes on. And I don't say any of that to disrespect their humanity or to make light of their lives, but instead to grieve with so many over the loss of those who had everything. I mean, everything this world had to offer, and yet we're restless. And then I think of my wife's grandpa, Allie's grandpa. We call him Paca, you know. He gave his life to Jesus when he was in high school, which was the 1940s. <laughs> he married his high school sweetheart, which that's what you did back then, I guess. Don't hear that too often anymore. And he was married for 60 years, 60 years. They didn't have a perfect marriage, but man, he loved her. Man, he loved her. Even in the very end, when dementia was just ravaging her body and her mind, when she would have these bursts of anger and confusion and push Paca away, and he would say, no, 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 Bertha, this is your David. This is your David. And he would paint her nails. <laughs> he wasn't that great at it, but, you know, he tried. He would tell her stories of her children that she'd forgotten. He was there walking with her. Even when he was thrown things at, you know, things were thrown at him, he was there, and he watched as she breathed her last breath, and then he watched as she was laid in the ground and buried. And then this past Easter at 6.30 a.m., Paca had his own battle with leukemia, and he breathed his last. He never chased death like those who are restless do. But death chased him, and he still was unafraid, for he knew, as the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he knew that Christ was there in his pain. <laughs> he was the kind of person that whenever you were around, you just wanted to be like. Well, tell me what you've learned, Paca. What have you been reading? I mean, one of his slogans was, the main goal of humanity is to preserve human dignity, no matter who you come in contact with. Well, who, why wouldn't you want to be around this man? And he cherished the God of the word that he knew could only be found in the word of God. He cherished Christ and the rest that he offered, the rest he knew even in his pain. And then he experienced when he was greeted in glory by Christ himself. You see, Paca, he chased Jesus and he got rest added in. But so many will chase rest and when they find that it is exclusively located in Christ, reject Christ, and then find they get neither. You see, one of the greatest needs isn't the fulfillment of our wants, not first and foremost. Instead, we need the transformation of our wants to be such that when they are fulfilled, they are restful. We have to be transformed in our desires, not just fulfilled in our desires. Jesus has not come to us just to affirm us, but to now call us to be the people we've been called to be, the people we've been designed to be, and that's painful and it's hard and it looks like a yoke. So what keeps us out? Who invites us in? But how on earth do we enter the yoke? Look with me here beginning in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to what Eugene Peterson so beautifully described as a long obedience in the same direction. It's not just a call to come to him, but instead is actually a call to come and now walk with him, rubbing shoulders with him as you would in a yoke, learning from him, not just about him or doing what he does, but allowing him to change what you love, the very secret and deepest desires of your heart. If you don't let that happen, you won't know rest. It's not just stamp of approval. It's not just going through the motions. You've got to let him do surgery on your heart. And eventually what we find is that we become someone who's reminiscent of Jesus himself. That is God's goal for us. The good work that he's began in you, he will bring to completion. You know, Dallas Willard, he's done a lot of research before he passed away and what it means to walk in this yoke with Christ. And in his book, Renovation of the Heart, I think he has a brilliant observation. Listen to this. It's on the screen. The perceived distance and difficulty of entering fully into the divine world and its life is due entirely to two things, okay? Our failure to understand that the way in is the way of pervasive inner transformation and to our failure to take the small steps that quietly and certainly lead to it. Willard has always been so brilliant when it comes to this. And it causes us to ask the question, okay, what are some of those small steps that quietly and certainly lead to it? How we enter the yoke is first by repenting of what keeps us out. Repenting of what keeps us out. If you want to just go your own way, you're never going to fit in the yoke. You have to get low if you want to get in. You've got to exude humility and be willing to learn because Jesus will challenge you. He will redirect you and he will form you into a new person and that doesn't always feel good. You have to admit that you're wrong sometimes, that you don't know all the answers and let him show you the answers. Let him show you what it means to live rightly, a flourishing life. You know, just earlier, if you look up in verses 20 through 24 here in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus details out a couple towns that he had visited, a couple towns where he had done these miraculous wonders, and they remain unchanged. The text says they were unrepentant. They saw Jesus, and they said, yeah, we don't need you as our Messiah. Yeah, we don't need your rescue plan, and Jesus warns them that if their wants remain unchanged, it will lead to their woe. Woe are you, Bethsaida. You see, arrogance, what it does is it makes you want the things you shouldn't have because it'll destroy you. And it also makes you miss the things you desperately need in order to live and to flourish. Repent of your arrogant posture. Repent of what keeps you out. And then secondly, the second crucial step to entering into this yoke is actually focusing on who invites us in. Focusing on who invites us in. You got to stay focused on Jesus. Being in a yoke necessitates proximity and awareness. You can't do a three-legged race and avoid the person you're tied to. <laughs> Otherwise, you will end on your face and you'll never end the race. More than a mission, more than a community, more than a vocation, we are first and foremost called to a person to know the intimate relationship with Jesus, to come to him 
to have our eyes set on the me that he invites us to. Come to me. And this is why we study scripture, so that we can see what others have seen about Jesus. And so we might continue to walk in this yoke with him. This is a core component as to why we're regularly engaged in Christian community because we see Jesus come alive in our brothers and sisters of faith as they sharpen us, as they speak into our lives. Focus on the one who invites you in. And then lastly, when you've been repenting of what keeps you out and you're focusing on who invites you in, then you go, you begin going where Jesus goes. You know, the first time you begin to enter into this yoke, it feels like you're getting jerked around because <laughs> you don't really know the pathway. And Jesus is the one in the lead, okay? This is what it means for him to be Lord, sovereign over your life. As the, he's the one who's directing the yoke. And when you're reading scripture, you suddenly find that Jesus is praying way more often than you would think. Jesus, you're the one who's healing. Why aren't you out there? Jesus, where have you been? Like all the people are asking about you. I've been praying. I've been engaging and cultivating my relationship with the Father. We find that Jesus sometimes shouts when we'd rather be quiet about some things. We see that Jesus is quiet when we'd rather shout about some things, that he's adamant about forgiveness, and he's absolutely insistent on eternal judgment. There's just no way around it. And so slowly over time, when you begin to repent of what keeps you out, and you're focusing on who invites you in, and you're going where Jesus goes... Living your life as if Jesus where, 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 if Jesus is where you are, doing what you're called to do, you'll slowly surrender your wants for his wants. He'll begin to transform those deepest inner desires. I had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine recently, and he was describing his life before he met Christ, and he said, I look back, and I don't even really recognize myself. I look back and I think, what was driving me? How could I live that way? It was so destructive and I didn't even realize it. But now this far in, and he's not saying he's got it all figured out, but realizing that as when, when Jesus really does take charge of your life, when you are yoked with Christ, he begins to transform you. You're not perfected until he returns. And all of our growth trajectories are a little bit different. So there's no room for comparison and judgment. But we do change. He is alive in you, and he is working in you. And we should expect some transformation, some joy, some integrity, some rest. And so in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, that's only possible with this. You have to enter my yoke. Now, make no mistake, the yoke isn't the place where we try to prove to ourselves or to God that we have what it takes. The yoke isn't our, the place where we try to justify our existence before God. It's not the place where we earn his approval, okay? Jesus has lived the perfect life, and he has died the sufficient death, and so paid our penalty, and so have earned, has earned our approval already. We are already infinitely loved, infinitely loved. It's through the cross that the life we long to live is made possible, but it's in the yoke. The life we long to live is learned, you see. And so that when Jesus says he holds it all now, he first held our sin and shame and paid our penalty, 
And when we are now saved from our sins, we're also saved for life and life abundantly here and now and for eternity. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is what he invites us to in the yoke with him exclusively. So repent of what keeps you out before it's too late. Focus on the one who's inviting you in because he so desperately longs to invite you into this intimate relationship and learn to go where he goes, transforming even your deepest desires to be in alignment with him, a life of flourishing, the life we were designed to live. Then when you, if you, happen to stand before that door, that threshold where behind it your deepest desires could be fulfilled, you no longer have to stand in fear because he'll give you courage knowing that the one that holds it all is actually standing behind the door, ready to say, come to me, enter my rest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And it, it never ceases to surprise me how much your word both is the most encouraging and comforting thing for my soul and also the most challenging. And so when we come here and we hear this promise of rest, we also know our battle with our own arrogance, our own desire to go our own way. And so I pray that as you have said the Holy Spirit has been sent to do, you would convict us of our sin, of our arrogance that is destroying us. As we hear in the gospel account of John, you haven't come to condemn us, but you've come to save us because we're condemned already. So save us from our arrogance. Save us from our brokenness. Break into our death and bring life. And give us wills that are submissive that will enter the yoke and learn from you. The life you long to give. The life we long to live. And in the words of the psalmist, we will praise your name in the midst of the congregation for the work you will do and will one day bring to completion upon your return. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.